Good morning. Uh, I want to thank you um, for joining the Pennsylvania Legal Aid Network and Pennsylvania Bar Association for our virtual panel discussion on Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Today's webinar, um, as many of you know, today's webinar is in place of our usual kickoff to the Conference of County Bar Leaders event. We typically host a reception prior to the start of the conference. This event has always provided a special opportunity for county bar executive directors, county bar leaders, and others to socialize and strategize with one another and with legal services and PBA representatives, and for attendees to be able to connect about the past, present, and future of legal services and pro bono work in Pennsylvania. Of course, this year is not like other years in so many ways. Rather than an in-person reception kicking off the CCBL, Today's session comes on the heels of last week's very successful virtual CCBL hosted by the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I wanna congratulate the Pennsylvania Bar Association, particularly Susan Etter and others, for a very well done CCBL conference last week. It was indeed excellent. While we are disappointed not to be able to gather in person, we're excited for this year's panel discussion and we hope it will highlight the partnership that exists between our county bar leaders and the legal aid community. That said, we are very hopeful that we'll be able to return to hosting an in-person reception in 2022 when we gather in Lancaster for the CCBL. As in years past, we are grateful for the generous support of the Pennsylvania State University Law Schools, Penn State Law and Penn State Dickinson Law, who are generously sponsoring this event. Their sponsorship has allowed us to purchase and mail books to the first 150 registered uh, attendees for this event, including many, many law students. Thank you to the deans of those law schools for your ongoing generous support and to the law schools themselves. Before I turn this webinar over, I wanna provide a few administrative details. First, there will be resources posted to the chat session for you to download. If you don't get a chance to download them during today's session, please reach out and we'll make sure that you get them. Second, because we are using Zoom webinar, we will be using the Q&A box for the last part of the session when question and answers happen. This is different from the chat box. The chat box has been disabled, but we'll be using the Q&A box. At any point, if you have a question, please type it into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. We will be monitoring this throughout and either we'll be addressing them as we go or during the last section of the session. While I cannot promise that we will address every question, we will try to address all the themes from all of the questions as we're able to do so. Finally, a word about CLE credits. We are offering one ethics continuing legal ed education credit to Pennsylvania attorneys for today's webinar. If you are joining us from another state, we are only accredited to provide CLEs in Pennsylvania. In order to receive this credit, there will be two times during today's session in which we will announce that we are launching a CLE poll question. This will be a pop-up box on your screen with a question that requires a yes or no response. Either response will count towards your CLE participation today. In order to receive the credit, you must respond to both questions. If you don't, we are unable to offer credit for your attendance. I also wanna briefly take time to thank dedicated plan staff who have made this event possible. Specifically, I wanna thank Brianna Bosak, plans communication officer, Hank Leone, plans training and information facilitator, Kelly Bach-Yeckley, plans training coordinator, and Natalie Bogerman, Plans Administrative Secretary. Without their work, this event would not have happened and would not be as successful as I'm sure you're going to find it. With these details out of the way, I'm gonna turn the floor over to Wes Payne of White and Williams, 
the current president of the Conference of County Bar Leaders for a few brief remarks. Wes, the floor is yours. Thank you, Patrick. <clears throat> uh, as a past president of PLAN and the current uh, president of the CCBL, it is uh, with great pleasure that I thank you for all for attending this event today. As Patrick noted in years past, the plan reception would be the big kickoff for the CCBL uh, weekend. And it would have been my job as uh, the president to quiet everyone in the room as we were all getting together and uh, chatting, uh, as Patrick noted, and try to get everyone quiet so the speakers could uh, speak. But everyone from around the state would all, for the first time would be getting together and every president would have failed or had failed, and I would have failed as well. Uh, and we long to get back to those days where we're all together face to face uh, for these things. As Patrick has noted, the CCBL this year was virtual and there was no reception. However, we're very pleased that Patrick took the efforts uh, to continue the relationship and bond with the CCBL uh, by uh, producing this program. Uh, as he mentioned, the first part of the of this program was at the CCBL during the lunch hour, evaluating the color of the law, and that session went great. This session promises to be even better as the discussion uh, will focus uh, strongly on housing and many housing issues. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy it. And with that, I would like to introduce the 126th president of the PBA, a, a partner at uh, Sheraton, Swager, and Malik of Luxerne County. Um, the guy who's just, I tease him and uh, respect to being the hardest working PBA president because he never misses a, an event because they're all virtual. And it is true, he never does miss one. Uh, David Swager, who is a true supporter of Plan. David, the floor is yours. Thank you so very much, Wes. And thanks for your leadership during this this unusual year as, as head of the, the CCBL and uh, la last week's uh, conference was uh, equal to, if not superior to any in-person one that, that we've had in the past. Uh, and I thank you and, and your team for the great job that you did. As Wes said, I'm David Schwager and uh, currently serving as the president of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. And on behalf of the PBA, I'm pleased to welcome you to this virtual panel discussion on Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. I know that we would have much preferred, as you've already heard from Patrick and Wes, to have gathered in person, but of course, COVID-19 had other plans for us. But during these turbulent times, I'm proud to say, the PBA has led the way in advocating in all branches of government on behalf of our profession, our clients, the justice system, and as you'll hear, even uh, legal aid, of course, which is so important. As with so many happenings since my term as PBA president began last May, today's discussion is a virtual substitute for that annual joint plan PBA reception sponsored by Penn State Law and Penn State Dickinson Law, which ordinarily kicks off the annual PBA Conference of County Bar Leaders, bringing together legal aid attorneys and bar leaders from every corner of the Commonwealth. It's always a wonderful evening of camaraderie and refocusing our attention on the, on the importance of legal aid. So instead of cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, today we will spend an hour and a half feasting ourselves on the meaningful and insightful observations of our esteemed panel of scholars, 
on the subjects raised by Rothstein's inspiring work. Today's session will surely provide you with an outstanding opportunity to hear about the impact of systemic government policies impose, imposing uh, designed to segregate our, our neighborhoods. What is clear is that our society must get to the roots of the problems raised in Rothstein's book. In order to do so, solutions are best implemented from the bottom up. That process would mirror the way in which legal aid in Pennsylvania has developed. That it has evolved lo involved local lawyers helping local clients in the local courts. The three-legged stool of legal services, the judiciary and the bar associations, both local and statewide, have worked tirelessly to promote and advance the cause of legal aid for vulnerable populations in our communities. The stool only is sturdy if we all work together and we do work well together. Each year plan and the PBA lobby our federal legislators for increased funding for legal services as part of ABA Day on the Hill. Last spring, of course, we did so virtually and addressed both our US senators and 12 of our 18 Pennsylvania US congressmen. More recently, Patrick Cicero graciously agreed to serve as a member of the PBA's Joint Task Force on the Continuity of Delivery of Legal Services, which report was just released this week. And Brian Gorman of Southwestern Pennsylvania Legal Services serves on the PBA COVID-19 Task Force, such an important group during these uh, uh, very unprecedented times. And this partnership is nothing new. It has its roots in the work of one of my predecessors, the late Joe Jones of Schuylkill County, who really worked hard to develop this relationship. And Joe Jones's legacy to provide access to justice for those who cannot afford legal representation continues on today. One of those who continues that tradition is my good friend and former Berks County Bar Executive Director, Don Smith, our moderator today. After serving a decade in that role and spending his career as an advocate for legal aid, Don retired to give him time to give his time to legal aid in his community. Don is an inspiration to us all, and I know he will do a fine job leading today's discussion. Don? Well, thank you, uh, President Schwager. That was very kind of you, and I appreciate uh, your remarks. But I appreciate even more your leadership during these unusual times. You, indeed, have not missed a beat. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And thank you, uh, 263 participants, for joining us today. We appreciate your involvement and, and concern and interest in taking this CLE program. For the next hour or so, we plan to do a deep dive into the book, The Color of Law, and what we as attorneys and bar leaders can do today in response. Its author, Richard Rothstein, debunks in a very convincing, well-researched manner what he refers to as the de facto segregation myth. De facto segregation means the races have come to live in segregated geographical areas by choice, that is by individual, personal choice, by the choice of real estate agents steering whites away from black neighborhoods and blacks away from white neighborhoods by the choice of banks and redlining 
refusing to give mortgages to African-Americans, but not by government choice, not by government-sponsored or directed segregation, or so the myth goes. Such de jour segregation is unconstitutional. De facto segregation is not. And the United States Supreme Court has held that it cannot be remedied by court action. An important case that highlights the distinction is the 1974 United States Supreme Court decision in Milliken versus Bradley, cited in the preface of the book we are highlighting today. In that case, the NAACP had sued to integrate the public schools of Detroit, Michigan. Over 70% of the city's students were black. In order to achieve true, true integration though, a desegregation order would have to include suburban districts that were overwhelmingly white. But first, the NAACP had to prove that the segregation was de jour and not de facto. The evidence they presented showed that new schools had been built in locations designed to reinforce racial lines. There was also evidence that Detroit engaged in discriminatory school assignment practices, such as transporting blacks from overcrowded black schools to other black schools going past closer white schools that had room for more students. Also, the state of Michigan had enacted Public Act 48, which actually was intended to prevent racial integration. The trial lasted three and a half months. At the end, the federal district child, trial judge was convinced by the evidence of de jure segregation and ruled in favor of the NAACP, taking the unusual step of ordering integration across district lines, incorporating the city and the suburban districts. On appeal, the Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed. But the city of Detroit appealed to the United States Supreme Court and by a five to four vote, the majority reversed, ignoring the evidence of record and denying that proof of government activity in support of segregation even existed. Among the dissenting justices, Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote a heartfelt opinion. He noted, and I quote, the constitutional violation found here was not some de facto racial imbalance, but rather the purposeful, intentional, massive, de jure segregation of Detroit schools, close quote. He went on to make a point that really resonates today for me anyway. He wrote, and I quote, unless our children begin to learn together, there is little hope that our people will ever learn to live together, close quote. 33 years later, in another five to four decision, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the majority, did not pay heed to Justice Marshall's warning. 
the school districts of Seattle, Washington and Louisville, Kentucky had implemented integration plans on their own, voluntarily, not by court order. Because, as each district argued, educational and broader socialization benefits flow from a racially diverse learning environment. Whether they knew it or not, they were subscribing to Justice Marshall's thinking. However, the court's majority found the plans to be unconstitutional. While the schools in each city had a racial imbalance, it was not due, in the majority's mind, to segregation by law, but rather by private choices, and thus did not violate the Constitution. The Chief Justice wrote, and I quote, racial balance is not to be achieved for its own sake, close quote. The goal of Richard Rothstein in writing his book, as he sets forth in its preface, is to show that Chief Justice Roberts and his conservative colleagues have their facts wrong. That is to say, most of today's segregation, in fact, results from open and explicit government-sponsored segregation in the past. What appears to be de facto is de jure. He writes, and I quote, the core argument of this book is that African-Americans were unconstitutionally denied the means and the right to integration in middle-class neighborhoods. And because this denial was state-sponsored, the nation is obligated to remedy it. In that regard, when considering remedies, I ask, what is the role of bar associations? I would like to challenge the lawyers, the bar leaders and the bar executives who are with us today to be thinking as we listen to our panelists, what can we do to make a difference? We hope today's discussion is but the start of a conversation on implementing remedies Richard Rothstein is seeking. So now I'd like to turn to our panelists for the necessary background to start and to support that conversation. And I'm honored to introduce the four who will share their knowledge and their expertise. First is uh, Professor Megan Reesmeyer. She is the Professor of Clinical Law at Penn State Dickinson Law and the Director of its Community, I'm sorry, she is a, a Director of its Community Law Clinic. Secondly, we have with us Eleanor Marie Brown. She is a Professor of Law at Penn State Law and is a Professor of International Affairs in Penn State's School of International Affairs. She is also a senior scientist in the Rock Ethics Institute. Prior to joining the faculty at Penn State Law, Professor Brown was a professor of law at George Washington University Law School, where she directed the Institute of Immigration Studies. Also with Penn State Law is Jill Engel. 
She is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs there and serves as Professor of Clinical Law. Previously, she served as Director of Penn State Law's Family Law Clinic. And prior to joining academia, Dean Angle had extensive experience in the private practice of law, including the, receiving the PBA's Pro Bono Advocate Award in 2010. Our fourth panelist is Rashida Phillips. She is with Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, where she serves as the managing attorney for housing policy. I would like to begin our discussion then with an, a historical analysis by Professor Megan Reesmeyer. In addition to her professor and clinic director duties, she chairs the school's diversity and educational equity committee, and she serves on the board for the Community Justice Project, one of the programs with the Pennsylvania Legal Aid Network. Professor Reesmeyer. Thank you, Don. And thank you everyone who has worked to, worked to make today's program a reality. I'm gonna to attempt to share my screen and hope that everyone can uh, see this. Good morning. I am a white woman. I am well-educated. I own my own home. Regardless of my personal income, my personal and family wealth is significant compared to many in this country, in large part, if not solely, because of policies put in place 80 years ago that benefited my grandparents, my parents, and me. What I will discuss in the next few minutes and what you'll hear throughout the presentation today is that policies, often more so than individuals or even groups of people, caused the kind of deep racism and division that our country suffers from. And it is only through policy change and creation that we will be able to bring our country out of this sickness. Segregation in housing and in the wealth and opportunity flowing from that in this country is primarily the result of two policies created as part of the New Deal under FDR as a way to bring the United States out of the Great Depression. The Public Works Administration created in 1933 and the Federal Housing Administration created in 1934. I'll discuss each of those in turn to describe how those two policies specifically affected discrimination and segregation in housing. But before we get to that, it's necessary to go even further back to examine one of the first governmental actions that should have created a positive result for housing in this country. We must first look at the 13th Amendment, what it says and what it did. The 13th Amendment was ratified on December 6, 1865, seven months after the official end of the Civil War. The amendment is fairly short, the entirety of it you can see here on the slide. You'll note that nothing in this language discusses something that Richard Rothstein discusses in his book, The Incidents and Badges of Slavery. 
Language about the incidents and badges of slavery was first used by the U.S. Supreme Court in the decision of the civil rights cases of 1883 in reference to transportation facilities, hotels and inns, and theaters and places of public amusement. In that case, the Supreme Court determined that private discrimination in those facilities did not qualify as a badge or incident of slavery and therefore did not violate the 13th Amendment. In fact, it decided that congressional prohibition of such behavior by private actors did violate the 14th Amendment. It was not until a series of cases in the 1960s and 70s that the court determined that discrimination based on race in, housing, in the housing context did qualify as a badge or incident of slavery, and therefore Congress could legislate its prohibition based on Section 2 of the 13th Amendment. What is important to note about the 13th Amendment is that it is the first time that the country, as distinct from the president, took steps to prevent the mistreatment or differentiation of treatment of individuals based on their status of being a slave. However, it was not until the, the Supreme Court's use of the terms incidents and badges of slavery that the scope expanded to include those covered by the amendment to all people of African descent. The expansion is vitally important as there were many free blacks in the country who would not have been covered by the protections the amendment intended to provide. All of that said, Rothstein points out that from the very beginning, while the protections existed then and do today, very few cases are actually brought asserting violation of the 13th Amendment. But it is clear that a significant number of policies have been created and pursued in direct violation of the Constitution. I'll turn now to discuss the New Deal policies that created a great deal of the racial inequality we see in this country today. First is the Public Works Administration. The PWA was created with the laudable goal of reducing unemployment and increasing purchasing power of Americans who were suffering from the effects of the Great Depression. One of the ways it was designed to do this was by constructing public housing to address the housing shortage for low and lower middle income families. The majority of housing projects built, however, were segregated, white only or black only homes. Very few of the housing projects were integrated. The majority of housing constructed was for white individuals and families only. Many of the projects had the effect of segregating areas that had been nominally integrated to begin with, thus creating further divide, either where it existed in low levels or often not at all previously. While it might appear from a pure numbers perspective to make sense to have more housing available for white individuals than African-Americans, because there were simply fewer African-Americans in the country needing housing in the areas designated for projects, the condition and quality of the projects built highlights the intention of a policy meant to disfavor African-Americans in the United States. The projects built for whites were usually built in more desirable locations and included things like community centers, playgrounds, and green space. The projects built for African-Americans rarely had these amenities. And in fact, the numbers of individuals needing housing were not matched by the number of housing units being built. While many apartments and housing units built for white families sat empty, Black families with no place else to go and unable to afford to live elsewhere were forced onto waiting lists and to double up with friends and families in the homes and units that were available for them. The book 
develops further the reality of what happened over time with the segregation of housing projects and how that led to an impoverished inner circle of homes and individuals within major cities around the country. Lack of transportation to allow African-Americans to get to jobs, the disappearance of businesses and industry in the areas African-Americans lived, and lower quality or an entire lack of public services and utilities in predominantly African-American areas. But I want to now turn to discussion of one of the next major pieces of policy after creation of the PWA that caused this housing and racial divide to further develop and deepen, the Federal Housing Administration. The Federal Housing Administration was created to assist middle-class Americans in purchasing homes by insuring bank mortgages. This policy created the greatest wave of home building and purchasing that the country had and has ever seen. This was the creation of suburbs around the country. However, and quite significantly, the FHA did two things that created and deepened segregation in housing. First, it used and perpetuated maps created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation that color-coded housing areas based almost solely on race, giving higher ratings to places that were protected from racial integration and lower ratings to those occupied by African-Americans. <clears throat> And second, it did not insure or allow homes to be sold to African-Americans or insure homes that were built in or near areas where African-Americans lived. The first official underwriting manual issued by the FHA and based on the color-coded maps of the Homeowners Loan Corporation instructed, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. A change in social or racial occupancy generally leads to instability and a reduction in values. The manual warned against infiltration of inharmonious racial or nationality groups. This underwriting manual was the basis for bank loans and mortgage insurance. And therefore, if a developer or home purchaser wished to build or buy a home, it had to comply with the conditions stated in that manual. The mass building project subsidized by the FHA could only be completed with the understanding that no homes would be sold to African-Americans within the new subdivisions. To ensure that the subdivisions remained segregated, clauses, restrictive covenants, had to be included in the deeds promising that the homes would never be sold to African-Americans. This was a very open and explicit program. No one attempted to hide this fact. The FHA refused to ensure any projects that had the intention of including African-American families, even in minimal numbers, living amongst white families, or even to white individuals who might allow, through renting or selling, an African-American person or family to live in one of the homes. The increased home purchasing power of white families, as I'm sure you know, has grown exponentially since these programs were first put in place. Once a family is able to own a home, especially one designated to be in a desirable area, that family's ability to continue to generate wealth through selling, buying, and acquiring more grows at a rate that cannot be matched by those shut out of the largest wealth-making asset most Americans have. 
One other policy that contributed significantly to the deep inequality we see today is the Veterans Administration's GI Bill. The GI Bill was created after World War II to help veterans returning from World War II to realize the American dream. The GI Bill offered educational and housing subsidies in large numbers to returning veterans. However, what is important to remember, and a fact that gets overlooked frequently in our retelling of US history, is that those benefits went primarily to white veterans. The VA used the same maps created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation and used by the FHA to determine whether to ensure homes being whether to ensure homes being purchased by veterans. This meant that while 10% of World War II veterans were non-white, less than 1% of the homes purchased through the GI Bill went to African Americans. One final thing that I want to note, it is important to keep in mind that while all of these policies mean most significantly that African Americans were severely restricted in their ability to purchase a home or live where they wanted, all Americans are affected by these policies. While the detriment fell most heavily and severely on African Americans, it is one more illustration that until all of us are free, none of us is. I say that not to give any amount of credence to those who would respond that all lives matter, but to remind us that while we allow inequality to continue, we prove that in fact, all lives do not matter. And I don't believe that is what most of us want this country to stand for. Thank you, Professor Reesmeyer. You know, remembering uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall's quote, I, I can't help but think that if our history had been different, achieving housing integration following the 13th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and with court enforcement, followed by non-discriminatory New Deal, Deal initiatives in the 1930s and the 40s, we would today have racial balance all along in our neighborhoods. And it would mean not only great interaction in the classrooms, but also with adults in the community neighborhoods interacting in local parks and stores and restaurants and bars. Would you agree, Professor Reesmeyer? Yes, yes, very, very much so. Right. Well, next, thank you. And next we uh, turn to Professor Eleanor Brown. She is uh, considered a leading scholar of property, in migration, globalization, development, and the law. She has written a forthcoming book to be published by the Oxford University Press that describes Black West Indian migrant success in the United States in the early development of property rights. Professor, how was their experience different from African Americans in our country? Well, let me begin by thanking you for having me here today and saying what an honor I consider to be here today. Um, and um, thank Professor Megan for this excellent presentation. And also thank you to my own Dean Harry Osofsky and also to Dean Daniel Conway for their role in helping to fund and put this together. 
Um, thank you so much for your kind introduction. I am going to be working um, with three pieces of work. One, um, which um, you all have, which is Rothstein. I'm also going to reference two much shorter pieces of work, which I would encourage you after later in the day to take a look at. Um, one is a piece called The Case for Reparations. Um, it is by um, the extraordinary author Tanahisi Coates. It is in the Atlantic Monthly. You can simply Google it. Um, and it is perhaps the most viewed piece in the Atlantic Monthly. And I'm going to start there. Um, I think it provides a very easy to access illustration of um, the phenomena that were just discussed, but also two specific parts of that that I really want to focus on today, which is the role of white homeowners associations and um, white realtor associations buttressed by the type of government action that we have been discussing now in determining who lived in what neighborhoods, who had access to what neighborhoods, and in, in ensuring that African-Americans did not have that access. And then I want to contrast the case of Caribbean migrants, um, Black migrants, but voluntary Black migrants who came to the United States well after emancipation, voluntarily with assets and how they were able to utilize their assets to sidestep some of these institutional mechanisms of, of race, in some, some mechanisms of institutional racism. I do this because I want to emphasize the importance of access to capital. Um, one of the things Coates really emphasizes, and I think it follows up very well from what Megan just said, is that the key element of this discrimination is whether or not the federally backed housing entities are going to underwrite mortgages in black neighborhoods. If they do not do that, it makes it near impossible for African-Americans to access those neighborhoods, to access neighborhoods in the way their white peers can. And the ability of West Indians to generate cash to be able to buy homes without reliance on mortgages and by extension without reliance on the federal housing agencies is what determines their very different housing outcomes than African-Americans. So essentially what I'm saying is cash matters and the intervention of the federal government to subsidize mortgages for whites, particularly white veterans returning home, um, you know, the GI Bill and related um, um, legislation that provided these subsidies, which Black veterans um, did not have equivalent access to. That really is the key. And that's what I want to focus on today. OK, so let me summarize quotes very quickly. And his work is um, utilizes Rothstein quite a bit. So quotes tells the story of Clyde Ross. Clyde Ross is a veteran returning after World War II to Mississippi who decides that he's not willing to put up with Jim Crow, um, quotes details in great um, and explicit, with great and explicit clarity, um, the things that caused him to leave Mississippi. And he decides he's going to move to Chicago. Um, I wanted to point out to you, the reason I'm emphasizing that he's a veteran, 
is that coach details a series of things that by virtue of his honorable service, he should have had access to um, subsidized by the federal government. Ross gets to Chicago. Ross decides that he wants to buy a home. Um, Coates goes through piece by piece. He analyzes the neighborhoods in Chicago. He analyzes the places that Ross and his similarly situated African-Americans would have liked to live. Um, he analyzes the role of what mortgages are being underwritten in what neighborhoods. Um, again, going into a lot of the work that Rostin discusses, the color codes that are assigned to particular neighborhoods. So if you're, if the federal government is willing to underwrite mortgages in um, a particular neighborhood, that neighborhood would be designated green or another color. If it is not willing to underwrite mortgages, um, that neighborhood is designated red. Um, the term redlining is not coincidental. Um, and essentially shows that Ross, despite his very hard work and distinguished service, really did not have access to any neighborhood except the one that was designated red. What then happens? Ross, because of his inability to access this, enters into what is called a contract buying arrangement. And a contract buying arrangement means that you really carry none of the risk and get no, you carry all of the risk and you get none of the upside. So let us say I, Eleanor Brown, decide that I want to buy a house. Let us say that the house costs $10,000. Um, typically, you know, maybe I needed a 5% down payment, maybe even less under the, under the preferential terms that were given to returning veterans. Um, what Ross had to do was he had to come up with that down payment, having given that down payment over to the vendor, the vendor keeps the title. Ross continues to pay and the title only becomes his at the end of the very last payment. If something terrible happens to him in between, you know, let's say there's an illness, he loses his job, he's unable to make the payment. He forfeits all of the previous payments that he would have made to the vendor. And so really what he is, is a renter. He's really a renter until that very last payment when the title is turned over to him. If, um, if although he's only a renter, if any of the, you know, things that typically happen, all homeowners know about it. If the boiler goes out, um, that is his responsibility. He pays for it, even though he's in essence renting until that last mortgage, until that last mortgage. I use the word mortgage loosely, quote unquote payment. And then he talks about all of these black homeowners who were in these unjust, usurious arrangements. And who took some time, mostly um, because of institutional barriers to um, legal to access to lawyers, um, to file suits to say that under consumer protection laws, leaving aside um, the racial discrimination claims, um, to say what has happened to us is unjust. Now, the, the reason I'm drilling down on this, and I really would like to have you understand this, is the federal government in refusing to underwrite those mortgages is working in concert with, concert with 
white homeowners associations and that's actually a term in the literature as you will see in Rothstein and what white homeowners associations are are essentially cartels we all know the term cartel you know it's a term that became very much part even if you didn't take antitrust law became part of the general discourse you know during you know OPEC and the 1970s and the gas the oil problems and what they did was they essentially protected their housing markets and ensure that the only people who had access to those housing markets were white people like themselves. And they did this through gangster tactics. Forgive me for being so crass in my language, but that's what they did. If you were white and they suspected that you were willing to, to um, sell to somebody black, let's say you happen to have the cash because you didn't have access to a mortgage, they would exercise tremendous social pressure. Um, they would picket your home, they would threaten not to, um, to be customers at your business, um, all sorts of really, really, really horrific things. This means that even those white people who might have been inclined to sell um, faced such tremendous costs if they were considering selling to whites that they were usually very disinclined to do so. I also want to emphasize the role of white realtor association. If you are a white realtor, as is the case, you depend on referrals. People in the community have to believe that you are somebody they want to do business with. The cost of being a white realtor who was willing to do business with a black person was extremely high. So those white homeowners associations functioned like cartels working in conjunction with white realtor associations. Now, how is it different for the Caribbean migrants? And I'm watching my time because I recognize, you know, um, I'm time constrained. When Caribbean migrants come to the United States, and I, when I say Caribbean migrants, I should make it clear who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who in the early decades of the 20th century migrated from that group of islands, um, you know, a little south of Miami, places like Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, the Eastern Caribbean. Um, and so they came, most of them, to the tri-state area, most of them to New York. Um, I'm talking about people like Eric Holder, the former attorney general's parents on one side, grandparents on the other side, Colin Powell's parents, um, Suzanne Rice's um, grandparents, all of whom are West Indian um, immigrant descended. Um, and what they did was they utilized collective savings regimes that they had brought from the West Indies which had been in place for generations um, since the days of slavery in the West Indies. I should back up and say that um, there was a, a system of plantation slavery in the West Indies. The primary cash crop was sugarcane, you know, in the antebellum south, the primary cash crop was, was cotton. Um, there was emancipation in the West Indies. Uh, these islands were British colonized several de um, decades before there was emancipation in the United States. And there were much higher levels of land ownership among former slaves, newly freed men and their descendants in the West Indies than there were in the antebellum South. What this means is that migrants coming to New York who tended to be 
relative elites, and I use the word relative, not to say that they're rich, but in relation to the communities that they're coming from, they had the money to buy a boat passage, get to New York, and pass through immigration at Ellis Island. And many of the um, agents at Ellis Island were not thrilled that Black people were landing. So you had to be very, it had to be very clear you were not going to be a public charge. And so they have a little bit more resources. They come to New York and they continue these collective savings regime. Now, what is a collective savings regime? Let us say that, you know, I'll just use three of the panelists. Let us say Elena, Megan, and Jill are all Jamaicans. Let us say on week one, Elena puts in $10. Week two, Jill puts in $10. Week three, Megan puts in $10. Then Elena can take out $30. If you do this um, in a planned, sustainable way, as a community, you can prioritize who is going to buy a home and you can make sure that the persons who are going to buy have cash to access that home. And that's what West Indians did. Um, um, they replicated techniques that utilized in the West Indies to subdivide and buy former sugar plantations from English plantation owners. They brought those techniques to New York. They put their cash together. And what they essentially do is create a secondary, it's a secondary market. They create, they generate cash to create a secondary market where they can informally utilize, um, you know, fund their own housing arrangements. Sometimes this is formalized. Um, you see the beginnings of um, you know, what might be called in the literature provident societies, West Indian benevolent associations, where it is more formal, but much of it is informal. And so what this means is when they go into a white neighborhood uh, and they're West Indian realtor associations as well, um, associations of black realtors who are West Indians and have West Indian clients, they have cash. They can look at a home. They can say, I want this home. They can approach the owner and they can say, I can close immediately. I will buy you out with cash. Now, uh, the reason... Uh, yes? I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, I must ask that if you could wrap up in about 30 seconds. Thank you. Um, the reason I'm pointing this out is I emphasized before the role of the cartels, the white homeowner associations. If you have cash, you're able to find whites who are willing to defect from the cartels because you're offering cash. And that's how Black West Indians buy into these neighborhoods, one by one by one by one, until some of the neighborhoods become majority West Indian. We see those institutional patterns today, West Indians in comparison to African-Americans, um, sociologists have shown in several areas in the tri-state area have higher value homes. They're more likely to own than to rent. And those homes are in more stable neighborhoods. I say all of this to substantiate Coates and Rothstein to say cash matters. And if the federal government was not underwriting in black neighborhoods, it mattered unless you had the cash to sidestep that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And uh, just to reemphasize your point about the difference in resources, uh, Richard Rothstein does point out that, that uh, currently as of when he wrote the book in 2017, that the median family income for a white family was $60,000, for a black family was $37,000. And in terms of wealth, that is the 
difference between assets and liabilities. For a white family, it's $134,000. For a black family, they have wealth of on media, a median of wealth of $11,000. So a difference in resources affects the ability to have home ownership, just as you've pointed out. Absolutely. And I suspect that post-pandemic, those numbers are even more stark. So I very much appreciate your making that point. Thank you. And I'd also, uh, um, Mr. Cicero had forwarded to me this week a, the report of the pa Pennsylvania Capital Star. They reported that Pennsylvania has the 17th lowest minority home ownership rate in the United States. Black home ownership rate is 43.2%, Hispanic is 41.2%, whereas white home ownership rate is 74.5%. And that's a very significant disparity. Thank you for that. Next, uh, we will hear from uh, Dean Jill Engel. Uh, as an Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, her responsibilities include assessing and implementing new curricula, such as adding a new race, equity, and the law concentration last year. She is a longtime member of the Board for MidPen Legal Services, a, another uh, program of Pennsylvania Legal Aid Network. And today, Dean Engel will highlight the impact of housing discrimination on black families. But first, Kelly is going to talk to us about the CLE poll. Kelly. Thank you, Don. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kelly Bakyekli. I'm the plan training coordinator. For attorneys participating in our session today, we are offering one um, ethics CLE credit. I have just pushed the button to launch a poll it's a pop-up box that should be on your screen right now. And as soon as you answer yes or no, it should go away for you. This will be left up for two minutes in order for everyone to be able to respond. In order to receive the CLE credit, you must respond to both this first poll and there will be a second one upcoming. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Kelly. And now we'll turn it over to Dean Engel. Well, thank you, everyone, and uh, such a such a pleasure to share the the uh, Zoom dais with my with my colleagues. And um, I I'm uh, intentionally um, going to try and bridge some of the things that have already been discussed, um, in particular the uh, some of the final comments by Professor Brown regarding mortgage lending versus buying a home with cash. And so I'll talk a little bit about the connection to mortgage lending. Um, but in the main, my, um, my time is going to be spent focusing on the chapter in the book, I believe it's chapter four or five, that's called Own Your Own Home. And so some of the th same um, themes and data that, that Professor Brown was discussing will be part of of what I'm going to cover as well. But in particular, um, there's this, this fascinating case that impacts our region. And that is the, um, this, the developments of Levittown, which actually occurred in Pennsylvania, as well as the first one was in New York on Long Island. And then there was another one in New Jersey. And it, was, it served as a bit of a, a bellwether for um, these planned communities in, in, uh, across the nation. 
And they were conceived as being um, cash cows, really, for, for white developers um, like William Levitt. And the market was World War II veterans. Now, we know, of course, that veterans were not white only, but these subdivisions were open to only whites. And that segregation, as Don pointed out in his uh, remarks earlier were segregated, not de facto, but de jure, right? Um, and, and what I'm going to um, try to underscore, which I think Professor Brown helped us um, understand as well, is that that segregation was done by reliance on federal subsidies that supported and in fact um, it required that the the policies were strictly compliant with racial division, with keeping whites in these planned communities and African-Americans, and, and then of course, flowing from that, um, all people of color and keeping them out. <clears throat> so like Professor Brown, I've also drawn on um, a, an additional source for my remarks, and that source is a New York Times article by David Ashinsky from 2017. And uh, Ashinsky is summarizing, he's, he's doing a book, a, yeah, book review basically of the color of law. And he sets us up to think about the book by using Levittown uh, as well uh, as I am as a case study. And he talks about the timing, um, which Professor Reesmeyer did, you know, set us up so nicely to think about this in the historical context as well. So we're, we're I'd, like you to, I'd like to invite you to think about um, 1950. Summer of 1950, we have um, North Korea having invaded South Korea. We have the McCarthy Red Hunts happening in DC. And William Levitt, at this point, has been working on this project in Long Island to take fallow fields, potato fields, into this planned community of starter homes. That would be uh, two bedroom, one bath, very basic homes. and they would be for veterans of World War II. And there is this, um, this reality that is often sort of absent from any conversation about this, which is that you had to promise when you bought a home in Levittown that you would never rent or sell your home to anyone who wasn't white. And the language used in the contract was other, you wouldn't rent or sell to anyone other than members of the Caucasian race, the um, language of semantics of the time. And Levitt himself gave an interview commenting on this to Time Magazine. Um, and his commentary was the, the sort of typical bait uh, not bait and switch, but really the, uh, it's almost gaslighting of the time where he, he says, uh, oh, no, no, of course, I have no racial animus. And the exact quote is, as a Jew, I have, as it, so he's using his status as a, a Jewish person. He says, as a Jew, I have no room in my mind or heart for racial prejudice. But, there's a but, I've come to know that if we sell one house to a Negro family, then 90 or 95% of our white customers will not buy into the community. And so he is overtly 
explaining this policy. And uh, at the end of this long quote that he gave to Time Magazine for, for an article back then in 1950, he says, we can solve a housing problem or we can try to solve a racial problem, but we cannot combine the two. And that gives you an idea of what the public discourse about housing and race were at the time. There were no, uh, there was no hesitation on the part of someone who was wealthy, powerful, white and male, like Levitt, who had full government support to do what he was doing uh, to explain away the segregation that he was perpetuating. And what Rothstein does so brilliantly in this book is he, he explains, you know, as we've heard already from my co-panelists, that this was not de facto segregation, in fact. Um, and here's a quote from, from Rothstein. He says, we've created a caste system in this country with African-Americans kept exploited and geographically, geographically separate by racially explicit government policies. And with the reality now that these policies are off the books, the problem remains though. They've never been remedied, Rothstein says, and, and their effects endure. Um, turning back in time again to Levittown, we have this example in the, the chapter called Own Your Own Home of the Maraday family. And the Maradays were um, a, a large group of siblings who moved to New York um, during World War II, during and, and soon thereafter uh, the war. And Robert Maraday was someone who ironically was working on the Levittown project in that he was, he had his own trucking business that he himself had started from the ground up as a war veteran um, through some connections that he made as a musician. He was actually a saxophone player and got to know some people um, in the community who helped him uh, with his idea of starting a trucking business, which was great business. He was, he was doing well financially. And he was in fact driving into this, um, you know, nascent subdivision delivering materials. And as Rothstein points out, Maraday and his family, um, there's, there's uh, this reality, this sad reality that they were not able to buy into the community. And Rothstein makes the point that Robert knew not to even bother to apply, but in fact, he had a nephew in the community and the nephew's name is Vincent. And Vince actually applied. He went out on a limb and said, I'm going to see what they say, you know, call them on this. So Vince is also a veteran like Robert. He applies, um, gets turned down by the VA. And his only option then is to get a very um, dangerous uninsured mortgage. And that's an example of the connection to the mortgage lending industry, right? Because the VA loans were made in collaboration with the FHA's underwriting manual, which clearly stated African-Americans are excluded. And this was a self-perpetuating mechanism for these Levittowns and suburbs like them, which were typically modeled on Levittown across the country. Um, so I'm going to stop there for now. We don't have time in the Q&A if folks want to go back to that, but uh, that's a bit of a snapshot for you of how things were actually operating in, uh, in Levittown 
1950 and that era. Thank you, uh, Professor Engel. And, and I know you mentioned that you'd based your remarks at least in part on chapter four of the book. And I, and I was, was struck by the conclusion uh, to that chapter by Mr. Rothstein and by where he quotes the US Commission on Civil Rights, their report in 1973, which was one year before the Millikan versus Bradley uh, decision by the United States Supreme Court. And the report there was, and I quote, housing industry aided and abetted by government must bear the primary responsibility for the legacy of segregated housing. Right there in a government uh, commission report, but yet was ignored and has been ignored by um, the colleagues and uh, proving, proving once again, uh, Mr. Rothstein's point that the court has gotten, the majority in the court got their facts wrong. So with that, uh, I'll turn the matter or matters over to our next presenter, Rashida Phillips with Philadelphia's Community Legal Services as the managing attorney for housing policy. She is considered an expert in subsidized housing law and has successfully advocated for housing policy affecting Philadelphia and beyond. Attorney Phillips, what's the focus of your advocacy today? Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm going to just talk briefly about how this shows up, how this shows up on the ground um, in the work and in real people's lives and how it impacts their housing. Um, so first, just to talk about sort of how redlining shows up, um, you know, redlining is not a historical issue. It's, it's not a past issue. It's not past tense. It's something that is very present. Um, in Philadelphia, when we look at um, sort of historically redlined properties and racial covenants, one search yielded more than 3,800 distinct properties with racial covenants in Philadelphia between the years 1920 to 1932, um, out of about 600,000 properties. And so because black families in Philadelphia were not allowed to live in a lot of neighborhoods thanks to those restrictive covenants and redlining um, and due to home and rental prices in those areas, um, they were allowed to live, those prices went through the roof. And then similarly, landlords really had little incentive to keep their buildings in a state of good repair, knowing right that tenants um, would not really be able to leave or find another building. And so, you know, the, the map here is, is a sort of historical redlining map of Philly and then the one beside it is where we see eviction rates um, happening. And so you can see a lot of overlap in those areas um, that the same places that have been historically redlined continue to experience disproportionate amounts of poverty, poor health outcomes, eviction, limited educational attainment, unemployment, violent crime, um, all in those same areas that have been historically redlined. So this shows up again um, in, in uh, our eviction rates um, in Philadelphia, Eviction is four times higher than a foreclosure rate, which impacts about one in 14 Philly renters. Um, Philly has been a city largely of homeowners historically um, that shifted demographically in around 2008 with the foreclosure crisis. And so now we're all nearly at half and half. We're about 48% renters. Um, and so our eviction rate is pretty high in terms of, of renters. And then um, over 70% of annual eviction filings in Philadelphia are against black women. We see about 19,000 filings prior to the pandemic on average that over 70% of those, um, uh, the, the people named in those complaints are, are black women. Um, there's a difference in the eviction filing rates in areas where there are what we might consider a black neighborhood. So where there's greater than 80% black people living in that community, um, they typically see 
uh, eviction rates three times greater than the rates in areas that have under 10% uh, black, black folks in that community. Um, and so again, right, when we're talking about this, one, when we're talking about redlining, right, I, I think we tend to frame it in terms of um, home ownership and, and mortgage and right, all of those things, but we rarely talk about how redlining impacts renters. And again, how that historic thread continues into the present. Um, and so 56% of all eviction filings occur in majority black communities, 81% all eviction filings occur in communities of color. So again, when we're talking about this, we have to be talking about it as a race and gender issue um, versus just a poverty issue that we tend to frame um, these things in. COVID-19 has really started to deepen those inequities. Again, the, the map looks very similar to the redlining map, um, but we're seeing that uh, as, as, you know, as we know in the, around the country, um, there's elevated eviction rates falling with, um, I'm sorry, elevated uh, COVID-19 positivity and hospitalization rates among predominantly black, black renters. Um, however, where those black renters live, right, um, are also the areas with elevated eviction rates. Um, during the pandemic, despite the various eviction moratoria, and again, right, we've seen far fewer filings. We usually see 19,000 a year over the past year because of the various moratoria, there's been about 4,000 filings. Um, but still, right, out of those 4,000 filings, the, the uh, rates have held the same in terms of where those evictions are happening. So 49% happening in majority black communities during a pandemic, 78% in communities of color. Um, so I just wanna turn really quickly to the um, affirmatively furthering fair housing process that um, is meant to sort of right, um, implement and, and administer the, the uh, mandates of the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act itself requires HUD to administer programs and activities relating to housing and urban development in a manner to affirm affirmatively further policies outlined in the F F FHA. Um, however, historically, right, um, people haven't had to do much in order to, to meet, meet the requirements. Basically funding recipients had to certify that they analyzed what's called um, uh, impediments to, to housing um, and had to basically do a report. Um, the 2015 AFFH rule really changed the nature of that and, and really um, expanded what um, people, what jurisdictions are required to do in order to um, show that they are affirmatively furthering fair housing. And again, that, that word affirmative is important there. And so what the new um, AFFH rule, which of course was rolled back by Trump, but which um, Biden is, is um, promising to re-implement, stresses a balanced approach. Um, it's it really one of the mo most important parts is that it relies on community engagement. It encourages and relies upon community participation to seek more meaningful and effective fair housing planning through the provision of data that again looks at things like um, uh, historically redlined neighborhoods, uh, historic access and barriers to housing for um, uh, communities of color and, and for other folks who fall within categories that are covered under the Fair Housing Act. In Philadelphia, we've done a lot of advocacy around making sure that our what's now called what what used to be called the analysis of impediments is now called the assessment of fair housing. So that is a plan that, um, again, comes out of the AFFH. Philadelphia did its um, assessment of fair housing. Um, the, the Philadelphia city government, in collaboration with the Philadelphia Housing Authority, did a plan that came out in 2017, I believe it was, that was about 900 pages long, Many of much of it maps and, and interviews and things like that. But it, it did do that assessment of fair housing. Um, advocates had to get involved in that process because there was a lack of community engagement and sort of local participation, even though that's the right purpose of it. 
um, there, what Philly did was, right, they surveyed about 5,200 people um, to respond to, again, what are some of the impediments or what are the barriers to accessing housing, employment, transportation in your community. Um, and so 5,200 surveys, right, is, is not a meaningful uh, number of people to, to be able to understand really what's happening. And then it was an online survey. There were not as many paper surveys given out. There was not enough focus groups given, um, you know, set up for folks with disabilities, folks with, um, you know, who English is not their first language, right? So we, what we did was we formed a collaboration amongst a couple of different groups, CLS, another organization that serves Latinx and Hispanic folks in, in Philadelphia, um, Chinatown CDC, Public Interest Law Center formed a small working group, um, started submitting robust testimony, getting a lot of media advocacy. And part of that advocacy ended up, um, the city responded to that by creating more focus groups and really expanding their plan and getting input from both advocates and impacted folks on some of the goals and outcomes for the assessment of fair housing. So I think we came out with a better one for the, you know, um, with our advocacy. The last couple of things I'll just cover really briefly so that there's time for questions. Um, we see significant high rates of voucher discrimination, again, very much connected to where we see um, historically redlined communities in Philadelphia, where people are being evicted, where we're seeing a lot of um, uh, un uh, habitability issues with our housing stock. Um, in Philadelphia, there was testing that took place and showed that 67% of landlords in Philadelphia refused to accept housing vouchers. Um, and because, again, the correlation between race and, and housing vouchers, who has housing vouchers, right? Um, most Mostly Black women, right? And so you're seeing that two thirds of landlords are rejecting these housing vouchers, um, despite us having a law that says that um, you are, you, you're protected, your source of income is protected with vouchers counting as a source of income. Voucher discrimination usually happens at the point of advertisement or application. So we see Craigslist ads, Facebook ads, things that just explicitly say they don't accept vouchers, but typically more, more common, right? Because people have caught on to that, that discrimination. Um, more commonly, it happens with tenants calling around asking being told by phone or during the application process that the property does not accept voucher holders um, or told in some form or another, right, that they don't accept it. And then by the time you go and file a complaint, by the time that process plays out, which takes a couple of years, believe me, I know, because I filed several complaints, um, the apartment is gone. And so what's the point, right? Um, most people don't pursue the protection even if they know that it exists. Um, so again, part of what we we are, you know, our advocacy is around strengthening things like source of income protection laws. Um, we filed, you know, litigation. We've taken legal tactics to try to file that. When we've seen um, whole buildings sort of at the back end, we've one building in West Philly um, emptied it, emptied the whole building out of, of voucher holders, right? And so we were able to file discrimination complaints um, because of that source of income protection, but also pair that with things like a race discrimination complaint, age disability, et cetera. And then finally, the last thing I'll highlight is um, the ways in which eviction records work, again, to act as a barrier, a specific barrier um, to accessing affordable housing, habitable housing, um, right? Because these eviction records follow people. So in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia, we currently do not have a standard or mandatory ceiling law, um, nor do we have any policies that say how landlords that should, should be treating records when they're um, looking at applicants. And so again, you, you may have landlords who have blanket eviction bans. Anybody with one eviction record, right, is, is not eligible for, for housing. Um, but again, 
who this discriminates against when we have 74% of the people with eviction records um, being black women, right? This, this really sets up a, a huge barrier, um, a sort of lifelong barrier for many people because of that record uh, following them. And so we have some solutions for that. I can go into that if there's time for more questions. Um, the last thing I wanted to cover is ex exclusionary zoning and how it has evolved. But again, just to leave time for questions, I'll, I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you, Attorney Phillips. Uh, you touched on uh, some remedies in terms of our advocacy. And, and before we turn it over for additional uh, Q&A, um, I would like to suggest as a former Bar Association Executive Director that I, I would suggest that associations around the Commonwealth consider hosting meetings, bringing together local agencies in your particular county. Every county isn't like Philadelphia, but, but we share some of these same issues. I know in Berks County, we, we have a problem with a lack of low-income housing, uh, problems with enough uh, Section 8 housing. And uh, I, I spend an afternoon a week in, in the uh, one uh, landlord-tenant uh, hearing, uh, hearings uh, schedule uh, in the one uh, district, magisterial district in in Reading, downtown in the city of Reading. And you're right, uh, minorities are disproportionately involved in the eviction process. Well, but we need to bring together different social agencies to do a needs assessment. Where are the needs in each of our counties? Where could uh, private attorneys collaborate with public interest attorneys in addressing these needs? Whether it's dealing with evictions, dealing with habitability, the availability of low-income housing, uh, and even I know an, an issue in Reading is lead paint hazard situation. How can we as bar associations deal, address these concerns, not only the concerns raised by um, Mr. Rothstein, but these types of concerns in our individual counties. Um, so while Ms. Phillips is still on, on the screen, I'll turn it over to Mr. Cicero for any questions that have been raised. Uh, before I um, do that, Kelly, do you want to launch the next CLE poll? Um, and I'll take a look at the questions in the Q&A box. Um, sure. Um, this is Kelly again for the attorneys in the audience. This is the second CLE poll box question we need you to respond to in order to process credit for you. Um, I guess there was some confusion. So if you're not an attorney, it won't hurt anything or... Um, blow up your computer if you do respond. There's no problem with you responding if you're not an attorney. So this will be up for two minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Um, so Don, we have a couple of questions and, and I think it's probably best to um, uh, address this to the panel. These questions weren't necessarily addressed to anyone in particular, um, but um, Rondell Jordan asked, are there any legal advocates in Pennsylvania, whether it's legal aid or otherwise, that we're aware of working to advance restorative justice remedies, such as reparations for black folks. In other words, you know, we talked about, uh, Professor Brown mentioned uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the case for reparations. And so I guess the question is, um, is this something that um, uh, civil legal aid or others um, in the context of uh, your, uh, the knowledge of the panel, anyone's working on it in Pennsylvania? So anyone on our panel have any uh, thoughts or reflections on that? It's an excellent question. I wish I knew the answer. I do not know the answer. 
I'm unfortunately not aware of any of that work being done in Pennsylvania. I mean, I, I think, right, depends on what you consider to be reparations or restorative. Uh, you know, I think there are folks engaged in that in some of that work, maybe not calling it or maybe have different terminologies for it, but, uh, you know, not specifically that I can think of. But I do know of this one professor in Illinois um, who is looking at restorative housing reparations and has a paper on it. I will type her name into the uh, chat for folks to look her up. Yeah, and I, I don't, I am certainly not aware in the context of um, the work within in the civil legal aid system that plan administers that being done, except in the way that Rashida kind of um, discussed. And I, I guess the question that I have or the thought I have about this is, you know, one of the things that Rothstein says that Don um, uh, mentioned at the beginning is that he wrote, he being Chief Justice Roberts, wrote that if residential segregation is not the product of state action, but private choices, it does not have constitutional implications. And the whole point of Rothstein's book is to overcome that. And so the question that I have is in, Pens in Pennsylvania and, and beyond, what is the role of, of us to overcome that understanding? to really change the understanding about how we've gotten to some of the stark realities of the statistics that Rashida put up um, in terms of eviction and there being a direct overlay between um, uh, redlining and um, of the past, explicit redlining of the past and uh, the eviction mapping. So I do think that there are folks working on this without talking about it in that way, but um, you know, it, it is it would be a fabulous, um, understanding, try to think about how we can describe our work more closely related to restorative justice. Um, anyone else, any final comments on that before I move on to the next question? Okay. Um, Sharon, I'm sorry. Yes, I, go I ahead. No, please. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put this in the chat as well, but the one, um, I looked at this a little bit for a course I'm teaching this semester, uh, just restorative justice approaches in general. And I did find um, the city of Pittsburgh has sustainable development goals that are that are very innovative and um, it's it's not directly responsive to your question. I'm, I, I don't think it might be um, if we drill down into them a little bit, but I'll put a link to that in the chat. Thank you. Um, um, so I want to just staying on staying on this point, uh, Andrea Farney says truth and reconciliation reparation should be pursued. Are there other state bars working on this issue that we could learn from? And so what are some other state bars doing? Again, I'm not aware. I think there's a, a good dialogue. I think one of the things that could come out about this is kind of a, at uh, PABI, the, the um, bar exec meetings or at some state bar roundtables. This would be a wonderful conversation to think about how county bar associations um, can be doing some of this, some of this work. Um, Patrick, I'm gonna jump in if I can. Please. The things that I think can happen um, and this is happening at a local level here in Carlisle, where our borough council is actually looking at, they created a truth and reconciliation committee just within the borough council. And that's at a small local level, but I don't think that's something that should be uh, ignored. It's not, it, it has the potential of having a much larger impact. Um, and so I think local bar leaders um, should not, discount the effect that they can have at a very local level that can have a much larger impact on the state and at the at the larger Pennsylvania Bar Association and, and have Pennsylvania be 
a leader in this area. If other, if we're looking at this, other states are looking at this, other local areas are looking at this. And um, if we don't see it, I think that puts a, a, a it creates a, a great opportunity for local bar leaders to be the ones who are the leaders in this. Yeah, thank you, um, Professor Reesmeyer. That, that's that's true. And I know that Deborah Hargett Robinson said Evanston, Illinois, will be distributing twenty five thousand dollars in reparations for African Americans to use on housing. This is reported on ABC News. Um, Deborah, if you have a link to that, that'd be great to put in the chat, and we can or put in the Q and A, and we can try to. Get that distributed. Um, just turning um, to a couple other questions um, that we have here. Um, David Friedman writes, are there any sorts of litigation initiatives um, that have proven successful in remedying some of the issues that have been identified and which bar associations could adopt as a model for our respective communities? And so maybe, you know, Rashida, I know that you, you all have done a lot of thinking about this. I don't know what litigation in terms of some of the um, uh, voucher-related discrimination that you discussed or anything else? Are there litigation strategies that you think have proven successful in overcoming this or even the exclusionary zoning work? Or is it more of a political um, slash um, legislative solution? Both. Um, I think litigation, right, it gets harder and harder to justify, you know, to engage in sort of big lawsuits and big suits under the FF FHA and all those things. And so what we have found to be helpful is more local strategies. Um, we do have a very robust um, Fair Housing Commission and Pennsylvania, uh, I mean, Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations that, again, includes an additional protected category of source of income discrimination. Um, that space is so underutilized, again, in terms of complaints. One, people don't know that these protections exist most times. And again, by the time someone goes and files a complaint and the case plays out a year or two later, right there, the housing is gone and it, it really hasn't helped. And so one of the things that we were able to find out, right, is that the PCHR has a injunction process. And so we were able to utilize that injunction process to, um, and had to get really creative about how, how we did it. But um, we were able to use that to um, in, uh, enjoin the landlord who was terminating everybody's vouchers from being able to file an eviction court against those folks. And so having that prevent the record that's gonna again, follow that person for life and keep them sort of stuck in substandard housing um, because no landlord is gonna take a person with an eviction record. So I think looking at those local solutions, um, we're, we're also hoping to see some um, uh, local legislation around tenant screening. Again, what landlords can consider, what they can't look at in terms of evictions, credit score, those kinds of things. Um, so I think both a combination of local solutions and getting more creative about some of our litigation, understanding that a lot of our organizations can engage in like super big lawsuits and things like that, but looking at what your local protections might be. Uh, thank you, Rashida. Um, Professor Brown, I have a question directed specifically to you from Kadeem Morris um, uh, with Community Legal Services. Is there a wealth disparity for black families, immigrants who have used non-traditional home buying tactics as compared to um, non-black, uh, non-immigrant uh, families, uh, black families. Additionally, how does that compare to the wealth or value of homes acquired by white homeowners? In other words, you contrasted some of these. Is there that uh, kind of intermediate ground where the, the black families who are immigrants who've used these non-traditional tactics have been able to acquire wealth at a greater extent? So the thank you so much for your question. Um, the comparative work that I have seen has looked at descendants, have, has been working the tri-state area, 
looking at descendants of African-American migrants from Southern states to the tri-state here and descendants of voluntary black migrants from the Caribbean to the tri-state area. I have seen work comparing the housing stock that, per, and some of this is a little dated from the 90s, early 2000s. The housing stock that those persons occupy who are homeowners, who are more likely to be renters, What's the median value of a home in the community that they're living in? Who's more likely to live in a community that is perceived to be um, a more stable community with a higher median or home value? Um, when you do that work, um, there are clear patterns emerging of descendants of voluntary Black migrants and persons who themselves migrated um, doing um, having acquired more, being more likely to be homeowners and renters in comparison to African-Americans. And by African-Americans, I mean descendants of persons who migrated from the Southern states. <clears throat> I have not seen, you have just asked a very good question, which is, is there work which lines those two up in relation to, um, to whites? Um, and I would not like to say that that work does not exist because um, I need to look again. Um, what I have seen is work saying that Black voluntary migrants look in their housing stock in many ways like white ethnics. By white ethnics, you know, they mean Italians, Irish, um, Jewish um, migrants much more than one would expect if one were considering only skin color, um, which tells me that there is probably work in relation to those white ethnic populations in relation to median white. That's a question I would have to find out the answer to. I appreciate the question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Brown. And there are a number of other questions and comments throughout the um, question and answer session um, that we had. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to address these. This is one of the unfortunate challenges with, um, with Zoom, right? Which is that unlike a traditional CLE, uh, those who wanna mingle and come up and ask the panelists questions afterwards can't really do that. Um, so we hope desperately uh, at some point in this year uh, that we'll be able to get back to in-person programming for um, uh, planning CLE, planning provided CLEs. Um, and of course, we hope desperately to be uh, together in person next year for the CCBL conference. I just wanna take this time to thank all of our panelists. Um, again, thank you very much, Professor Leesmeyer, Professor uh, Engel, um, Professor Brown, um, and Attorney Phillips for your expertise. Um, we will make sure that um, if you have questions that we didn't answer and you want to reach out to us and get some more information, if you want some resources, that we'll get that from them. We did put the, the link to all the handouts that we had, the materials that we had in the um, chat box. So if you haven't downloaded that, now is your chance to do it. If you miss your chance, um, then um, please reach out to us and we'll make sure you get it. I also want to thank... Um, uh, Attorney Don Smith. Um, Don is an invaluable resource and committed advocate for low-income voices um, and has in so many ways de dedicated his life to serving vulnerable populations 
from every position he's had. And so I'm grateful for his moderation of today's panel and his enduring and continuing support of PLAN and of Civil Legal Aid. Um, and of course, again, thanks to Dean Osofsky uh, and uh, Dean Conway of the respective law schools to uh, Penn State Law and Penn State Dickinson, without whom uh, we not, would not been able to put on this presentation. Um, and the PBA has been a great friend of, of PLAN and Civil Legal Aid as uh, David uh, uh, Schwager outlined at the beginning of our today's presentation. Thank you very much for joining us today. I would be remiss if I didn't add that on March 23rd, PLAN is hosting its virtual um, Excellence Awards. We ordinarily do that in person too, but you can visit PLAN's website, palegalaid.net um, on the evening of March 23rd. And uh, from six to 7.30, we'll be having an Excellence Award presentation that evening, awarding um, Excellence Awards to a number of legal aid advocates, including my predecessor, Sam Milkus, who will be receiving the Outstanding Leadership Award um, in support of civil legal services. And so all those of you who know Sam, um, uh, I know, uh, respect him as much as I do. And so please check out that event um, uh, on March, the evening of March 23rd. Thank you all. Um, stay safe, continue to mask. Um, we at PLAN even went so far as to um, get PA Legal Aid Network branded masks so that we can mask and um, uh, show off our colors at the same time. So take good care, um, have a wonderful afternoon. Um, and with that, uh, we'll be signing off. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, thank you so much.